Welcome back to the program. Someone once wrote that happiness is a serious business. But should happiness be a goal in and of itself, or is it simply a construct to achieve what we desire and find our place in the world? Certainly for Woody Allen and Annie Hall, the opposite was true. Let's listen. I have a very pessimistic view of life. You should know this about me if we're going to go out. You know, I, I feel that life is, is divided up into the horrible and the miserable. Those are the two categories, you know. The, uh, the horrible would be like... Um, I don't know, terminal cases, you know, and blind people, yeah. crippled. I don't know how they get through life. It's amazing to me. You know, and the miserable is everyone else. That's, that's, so, so when you go through life, you should be thankful that you're miserable because that's, you're very lucky to, to be miserable. I suppose the real question it asks is if misery and unhappiness can be an equally powerful life construct and motivator. My guest, Gretchen Rubin, has looked at happiness from all sides. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Happiness Project. She started her career as a lawyer and clerked for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Her latest book is Happier at Home. It's just out in paperback, and it is my pleasure to welcome Gretchen Rubin to the program today to talk about Happier at Home. Gretchen, thanks so much for joining us. Well, I'm very happy to be talking to you today. I'm delighted to have you here. Does happiness have kind of a bad reputation these days? You know, it does have a surprisingly bad reputation. Some people think that to be happy is a sign of being superficial or shallow or uh, stupid or having a, a lack of discernment. Um, and they associate unhappiness with sort of a deeper appreciation of life or the arts or that, you know, that there's something um, more profound about being unhappy. One of the things that leads to that, it seems, is this kind of inherent disconnect inside of happiness that you can be happy in the moment, but the minute you have to think about what the possibilities are for the future, one can't maintain the same level of happiness. Well... I mean, I think that you've put your finger on one of the great tensions within any, anyone's efforts to be happier in their own life, which is, on the one hand, you want to focus on the moment and think about what's happening right now, um, which is very important. Many people work on trying to be more mindful, more present in the moment. But at the same time, a life which is only focused on the present, I don't think that would be a good life. There are many things that we do because we think that over the long term, there's something that, that's going to make us happier, and it's worth doing something now in order to build happiness later. Now, sometimes you can be tricked by that. You know, you may think like, oh, if I get this tattoo on my forehead now, I'll, I'll love it for the rest of my life. Or for sure I should go to law school in 10 years from now. I'll be so glad that I'm a lawyer. And like, well, maybe not. You know, you really have to think very carefully about how you spend your time in the present in order to do things for the future. Um, but certainly there are many things that we do do in order to improve the future that are worth um, doing right in the moment. So that's a, that's a very great tension. Is there an inherent danger also that the more we think about happiness, the more we fixate on it, focus on it, the less happy we tend to be? You know, many people voice this. I mean, these are great minds. You said it. Eleanor Roosevelt said something along these lines. John Stuart Mill said, ask yourself if you are happy and you shall cease to be so. This is a very major theme in all of happiness uh, study. I have to say, from my own experience and my own observation, I do not believe that this is the big challenge of happiness. And to, from what I've seen, and certainly in my own life, a much greater 
challenge is not thinking about it at all. Going through life being preoccupied with petty grievances and minor irritations and just managing the chaos of getting from one day to the next and never stepping back and saying, is this what makes me happy? How could I be happier? What are the things that are with, within my reach without spending a lot of time, energy, or money? What are the things that I could do to make my life happier? And then taking the steps to do it. And I think if you're not thinking about happiness, it's very easy to just never, never even, it just never occurs to you that there are little things that you could do that might make a surprisingly big difference. And one thing I've seen over and over for myself and for other people is often this stuff, it's so small. It's tiny changes can have a surprisingly big difference, but you've got to take the moment to think about it. And so I think that stopping to ask yourself, am I as happy as I can be? Are there things I can change about my circumstances that I think are going to make me happier? I think that that really contributes to a happier life. So I don't believe that. But as I said, many, many great minds have, have voiced that opinion. So you have to say me versus John Stuart Mill. Make your choice. Is it a battle to really achieve long-term happiness, or is happiness simply something that becomes a, a motivator in some ways to move us forward? Is it an end in itself, or is it just a construct for us to do other things? I think it is a driver of human nature. I think the desire to be happy is something that um, shapes our behavior and our thoughts. We'll talk a little bit about that because in many ways it arguably could be less of a motivator sometimes. If we feel like we're happy, we want things to stay exactly as they are. Well, if we're happy, why, why would we want them to change? To grow, to improve, to do new things. Right, which is itself a huge driver of happiness. Um, when I was trying to figure out how do you even think about happiness or how to change happiness, I realized there's, there's sort of four things to think about. The first is um, how can you have more of the good things in life? Some, you know, the things like fun, enthusiasm, love, how can you have more of that in your life? So you think about feeling good. How do you feel good more of the time? Then you have to think about feeling bad. What makes you feel guilty, angry, resentful, bored? And what can you do to eliminate those elements of your life? And I have to say, in my own happiness project, I did a lot of that. Like for Happier at Home, I, you know, one thing that just drives me crazy is clutter. It's a trivial thing in a happy life, but it weighs me down more than it should. And so I did a lot of things just to try to bring more order to my everyday life because I wanted to get rid of things that made me feel bad, not being able to find things, being surrounded by things that didn't work or weren't, weren't used. Then there's feeling right, which is a little bit harder to grasp. And that's the idea that we are happier when our lives reflect our values. But sometimes doing the things that make that reflect our values don't make us feel good. So, for instance, you might go to the hospital every day to see, visit a sick parent, and you don't enjoy that. You don't look forward to it. You dread it. It's awful. It makes you feel very sad and upset. But you do it because it's important to you to be um, a supportive child and to be there for someone who's in the hospital. So it makes you feel happier because your life reflects your values. And then the final thing is what you just put your finger on, which is the atmosphere of growth. We're happier when we feel like we're growing, when we're improving something, when we're learning something, when we're helping someone, when we're fixing something that's broken. And often, even when you're not in a happy place in your life, the atmosphere of growth can be an engine of happiness because if you're learning to do something new, if you're helping someone who needs your help, if you see something getting better or, or improving, 
it can give you a feeling of happiness and energy that can lift you up. Um, a friend of mine once said, um, I finally cleaned up my fridge, and now I feel like I can switch careers. <laughs> and I kind of knew what she meant, but somehow just like get, making one little thing better, even something as trivial as cleaning out a messy refrigerator, can kind of give you that spark that you need to make bigger changes that will lead to more happiness. How important is self-awareness, a true okay. sense of self-perception in all of this, how we feel versus how we are, essentially? Well, I, I wouldn't characterize how we feel versus how we are, because I feel like that's the kind of thing that can get people very tangled up and isn't very helpful, at least for me. But, um, but I think to point to this idea of self-knowledge is just of enormous importance. I mean... It's just, it's key to everything. And, you know, you think, oh, what could be easier than just knowing myself? I mean, all I do is hang out with myself all day long. And yet it's so easy to be distracted by the way we wish we were or the way we think we ought to be or the way other people want us to be that we lose track of what we're actually like. And, I mean, even with funny things, like, you know, it's easy to think, like, well, of course something is fun. Crossword puzzles are fun. Skiing is fun. Drinking wine is fun. Shopping is fun. Outdoors is fun. Um, but nothing is inherently fun. It's only fun for you if it's fun for you. And so to always say to yourself, is this true for me? Is this what I want? Often when we have something that other people very much want, like a job that other people think is very desirable, it's very hard to let go of it even if it doesn't make us happy. And so, so I think you're absolutely right that this, this self-knowledge and this constant challenge of self-awareness, of really knowing yourself, is of paramount importance. I have 12 personal commandments of the things that I try to use to shape my everyday life, my behavior, and my actions, and my thoughts. And the first one is to be Gretchen. And, of, of course, everyone has to substitute <laughs> his or her own name. But to be Gretchen, because I'm saying, like, why am I doing this? You know, is this, is this the right thing for me? Because that is such an important part of trying to create a happier life. The other commandment that ties into this is the idea of acting the way you want to feel. I mean, that also requires this sense of, of self-knowledge. Yes, and this is tricky because, because research shows that the way that we act has a huge influence on the way that we feel. So, And you can use this to your advantage because like, if you're feeling shy, just make yourself act friendly. Or if you're feeling lethargic, make yourself act energetic. And you will kind of spark those feelings in yourself. On the other hand, you don't want to be such a faker that you feel like you're putting a false face to the world and that no one knows the true you. Again, these things are intention. But it, it's absolutely true that sometimes if you want to change the way you feel, um, if you act the way you want to feel, if you're feeling resentful towards somebody but you act in a thoughtful way, um, it can help you change your emotional state. It's very difficult for us to directly change our emotions. But be, be, by changing our outward behavior, we can sometimes affect our emotions. And a great example of this that everybody's familiar with is listening to upbeat music. If you listen to your favorite song, you usually feel better. It's, you know, what you're doing is you're just pressing a button and listening to that music, but you change your, your internal state. And one thing I found, and 
like in Happier at Home, and I found this over and over, is that when I was, and back to your idea of self-knowledge, when I was aware of what I was feeling, I was able to say, well, what can I do to change the way I'm feeling? For example, I'm one of these people who flares up very easily, very operatic in my response to things, and one of my resolutions is to underreact to a problem. Not to minimize it, not to ignore it, but just try to keep my reactions very calm. And what I found is that if there's some kind of crisis, like I recently left my laptop in an airport, by constantly saying, underreact, underreact, I help myself stay calm. Because usually there's no, there's no purpose to be served in you know, yelling and screaming and throwing things and running around and burning yourself out with all these high emotions. But by trying to act calm, I help myself feel calm and that helped me deal with a difficult situation um, with less wear and tear. Did you find the laptop? I did. Some <laughs> wonderful soul going through JFK security, um, JetBlue terminal, turned it back in. I didn't know until the next morning, so I had a long day um, of panic, but or, or near, you know, calming, calming, calming myself. Um, but when I got up in the morning, um, it had been turned in, so I was very happy. How much of, of happiness and the way we approach these things we've been talking about, Gretchen, how much of it is temperament that's kind of hardwired into us? Well, it's interesting. Research suggests that about 50% of happiness is genetically determined. And I think Woody Allen, you played a clip. I mean, he's a good example of a guy. Some people are Tiggers, some people are Eeyores. And um, you know, we all know where Woody Allen comes out on that. Then about 10 to 20% is something called life circumstances. And that's things like occupation, education, health, marital status, um, things like that. And then all the rest is very much related to the way that we think and the way that we act. And so, and that's where something like a happiness project can come in because, you know, your range might be five to nine and my range might be three to seven, but we can all do things that will help keep us up at the top of our natural range rather than push ourselves down to the bottom of our natural range. And talk a little bit about how this project and, and the work you've been doing on happiness, starting with the happiness project, brought you around to this idea of focusing on the home. Well, it's interesting. I had this very puzzling experience. I was unloading the dishwasher in my kitchen. I could hear my family in the next room. And all of a sudden, I was hit by this wave of homesickness, which was, which was such an odd feeling because I was standing right in the middle of my own home. So why did I feel like I had gone away to summer camp for the first time? I realized that it was as if I'd been flash-forwarded 25 years into the future, and I was looking back with yearning at what I have right here and right now. And that feeling of homesickness got me to focus on the idea of home. And, you know, I've been writing and thinking and researching about happiness for years, but I had never seen it through this lens of home. And it just hit me so hard that so many elements of a happy life come together in the idea of home, from time, possessions, body, to, you know, in my case, marriage, parenthood, family, neighborhood, all these things come together. And, and home is an almost universal most people have, you know, they might be single, they have roommates, they have multi-generations, whatever it is, they have an idea of home. And when we walk through that door, we want to feel at home, at home. And um, it, it, once I saw the importance of home and how important it is to feel happy at home in order to have a happy life, 
um, I wanted to say, well, what could I do? You know, what could I do as part of my everyday life without spending a lot of time, energy, or money um, that would make my experience of home happier? There's also the nature of which this change, and you've touched on this a little bit, that, that the kind of change one wants to make to be happier needs to be organic, that it's not really about turning your life completely inside out or, or taking on a new life. Absolutely. I mean, I think I love reading about people's sort of radical happiness projects, like Thoreau moving to Walden Pond or Elizabeth Gilbert going to Indo- you know, India and Italy and Indonesia. But for most of us, you know, that's not very realistic and maybe not even desire. You know, I wouldn't even want to do that, even if I could, which I can't. Um, but, you know, the everyday life um, offers for most of us many opportunities to make small changes that are very realistic um, that can build happiness, whether that's going to sleep an hour earlier, finally admitting that as much as you tell yourself that you can get by in five hours of sleep, it's not enough, something as simple as that. Um, something like joining a group, because you know, one of maybe the key to happiness is strong relationships with other people. And so if you start a book group and meet with friends once a month, that's going to be something that's going to make you happier, very realistic. Um, one little tiny change I made in Happier at Home that made a huge difference in the atmosphere of my house or, um, is now every time anybody comes or goes, we give a proper warm greeting or farewell. Because um, we got in this really bad habit. All, all, my husband and I, our two daughters, of just you know grunting out like oh from across the room and not looking up from our book or the newspaper or an iPad or homework or whatever. And it wasn't that tender, attentive atmosphere that I that I wanted to create. And I when we talked about it, we decided that we all wanted to change. We all wanted to give really warm hellos and goodbyes. And now we do, and it didn't take any nagging. It takes practically no time or energy. And it just has this huge influence on just how engaged all of us feel with each other and how recognized we feel, acknowledged we feel when we come and go. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities for finding these very small things that can actually make a big difference. What are some of the things that run up against these areas of happiness that we've been talking about? Certainly guilt is one of them, anger, mm-hmm. which you touched on a little while ago. Mm-hmm. So, What are some of the things that really prevent us from achieving these kinds of, of happiness? You know, one of the things that people most often mention to me is um, a struggle with a habit. Um, there is some habit that they cannot form or they cannot break, that just consistently brings them down. Whether they really believe in the importance of exercise and their doctors tell them they need to exercise and somehow they just can't do it, or they can't make time for fun for themselves. Like People are like, why is it that I do everything that everybody else wants me to do, but I can never take time for myself? Um, you know, it, it, over and over, the, it, it comes up, um, you know, with food, with exercise, with procrastination, with, you know, organization and simplicity. All these things, a lot of times they come down to a habit. And in fact, for that reason, my next book, which is going to be called Before and After, is all about habit formation. Because I kept seeing that so often when people had a, were persistently struggling with something, it was because there was some habit that was getting in their way. 
and I be, I just became increased. I you know it was sort of like with Happier at Home when the idea of home just like flooded my mind with this like giant flash. Same thing with habits. I was like, oh my gosh, how did I not understand the importance of habits to happiness? You know, something like forty percent of what we do every day is based on habits. So it has huge consequences for our lives. If we have habits that work for us, we're going to be a lot happier than if we have habits that do not work for us. And so. You know, understanding, and it, it comes back to the idea that you raised a few minutes ago, self-knowledge. Because to understand how you could change your habits, it is not one size fits all, unfortunately. Different strategies work for different people. There's a lot of things to think about. So you really have to think about yourself and who you are before you can think about how to set yourself up for success. One of the things that you repeatedly come back to, and in some ways it's even related to this idea of habits, is a sense of organization, of routine, mm-hmm. of structure, and the importance of that in creating happiness. Well, it's interesting that you raise that, because one of the things that persistently surprises me is the degree to which for most people, not everyone, but for most people, outer order contributes to inner calm. More than it should, because we would all agree that something like a crowded coat closet or an overflowing in-basket is trivial, in the context of a happy life, absolutely. And yet over and over i found, and people tell me they find the same thing, that there's something about getting control over the stuff of life that makes you feel more in control of your life generally. And for most people, when they see clear surfaces, where they see papers put away, where they can find their keys and their passport and the stamps, when they're not surrounded by stuff they never use or that is broken or that they never quite, you know, that yoga mat they never used. Oh, I was going to learn how to make beer in the bathtub, but I <laughs> got, I stopped doing that. You know, when you get rid of those things, you know, you give away the clothes you never wear. You give away all the cooking implements you never use. Get rid of the gardening tools you never use. Um, get rid of the stuff that's broken or doesn't work or doesn't fit. Um, people just feel more energized, more optimistic, more creative. There's just this strange connection between outer order and inner calm. Now, of course, it's also true that when you feel inner calm, it's easier to create outer order because it's a lot of work to create and maintain order because we just have chaos is just always threatening to stuff is coming in, you've got to sort through it, what papers do you need to keep, you've got so much email. Um, It takes a lot of work and many, many of my resolutions are aimed at like very easy, quick ways of trying to stay on top of clutter so you can keep an orderly environment without having to do like spend an entire weekend cleaning out your garage. So for instance, like the one minute rule, you spend one minute if you can do something in one minute, you just go ahead and do it. So you hang up your coat, shut the cabinet, file a letter, and so those things don't accumulate. Or another one um, for Happier at Home was to go shelf by shelf. And so whenever I have, like, you know, sometimes you have these weird, odd bits of time, like you have five minutes before you need to leave for a meeting and you don't quite know what to do with yourself, I just go whatever is right in front of me, a drawer, a shelf, um, a closet, and I just look at it and really see it because usually you just, you know, you don't even really see what you're looking at and say, is everything where it ought to be? Do we need all these things? Do we use them? Do we love them? You know, let me just tackle this one little bit of my apartment in this five minutes. And it's funny, just little by little, bit by bit, things start sorting themselves out and you do, and it gives this much greater sense 
of orderliness and control. What do we learn, if anything, from the opposite? And do we admire those people that can live in this perpetual state of chaos sometimes with all this clutter or disorganization or all, you know, various degrees of this around them and yet are truly successful and truly happy? You know, I do think there are a small number of people who absolutely just do not see clutter. I mean, they do not register it. They do not, they are not affected by it. They don't, they don't, it doesn't bother them. Uh, cleaning it up doesn't make them feel any better. Um, and that's great for them. The problem is usually those people are living, the, that, is, that is the minority. And often those people are in a context where living that way puts a lot of burden on other people. Whether because they feel like they have to clean it up because they can't live in a house that's like that or they can't work in an office that's like that or just seeing it is annoying to them because if you're if you want to see clean surfaces and things put away just seeing that can be sort of um can be sort of distressing so i mean i think it's it's for the for the people who thrive on it um you know, and there's some, some people say, like, oh, well, having a bunch of stuff out on your desk stimulates your creativity. I mean, again, it's all just knowing yourself. There is no one right answer. If you find that having everything out in your office stimulates your mind and helps your creativity, then that is great. And, and find a way so that you can work that way, work in a way that's optimal for you, and that is also not distressing for other people. So, you know, you have to find that balance. Or say to yourself, well, you know, maybe some people are like that, and maybe I wish I were like that because I think that seems cooler. Um, but for me, it's better not to be, you know, I work better in an environment that's different. There is no right way or wrong way. It's only the way that works for you. And so pay attention to yourself. When do you work most easily? When do you feel most creative? When are you most productive? When do you feel more at ease? I mean, one of the resolutions that people most often say to me, funnily enough, helps their happiness, is the resolution to make your bed, which is so tiny, but people say it makes them feel better. But then somebody said to me, look, when I was growing up, my mother made me make my bed every single day, and now I'm a grown-up, and I don't have to make my bed, and every night I come home and I see that unmade bed, and it makes me so happy. <laughs> I'm like, that's great. There's no magic in making your bed. There's no, it's, it's, just, it's just whatever works for you. If this is what works for you, you know yourself, that is great. Like, there, there's no, there's nothing, there's not, you know, it's just a question of fit. So, um, I personally do not find anything particularly romantic in people who thrive in disorder. Um, I wouldn't want to work that way, so it doesn't look that enticing to me. But you're right, there's certainly many people um, who seem to, though it may be that it's not as disorderly as it seems to them. You know, often you'll see somebody who's, it seems crazy messy, but boy, they can put their hand on any piece of paper right away. So it's orderly in their mind, even if that order is not visible to the rest of us. And finally, Gretchen, talk about it with respect to creativity, because we certainly have this iconic image of the angst-ridden artist being driven and being successful by virtue of unhappiness. Yeah, but I think that's almost because it's more colorful. You know, it's it's more interesting to read about. It's not... Um, happiness and intelligence are not. There's no. There's no correlation between unhappiness and and uh, you know intelligence level. And it, I think it starts to be very difficult when you're having. It, we don't know that much about other people, and so when people say, "Well, you know, X Y Z person was very unhappy," I wrote a I wrote a biography of Winston Churchill, and people said, "Well, Winston Churchill was very unhappy." I'm like, "Well, you don't really know that." 
you know, that's what you say, but how do we really know another person? How does, you know, and that person might have presented themselves in a certain way, and I think sometimes artists want to present themselves in kind of a tortured way because that's our expectation, and there's kind of an idea that a true artist would be tortured, and so if, you're, if you want to seem like a true artist, you might go out of your way to present yourself that way. Um, I read an interview with a um, an artist, and now I can't remember the name of the artist, but it was somebody very well known, saying how he had to stop himself from sh- go- being, pla- being places on time. Because how ridiculous was it for a great artist to always be showing up places on time? And I thought, well, what's more ridiculous than a great artist being late on purpose in order to seem... Like he was behaving like an artist. I mean, so so I think this our idea of what people are, you know, we don't really know what we're seeing, why we're seeing it, and that's why to me it's always most helpful to think about the individual. Don't try to pattern yourself after after Picasso. You don't really know what he was like, and even if you did, you know, you're not Picasso. No one is, and so the thing is, like, well, what works for you? What is the thing that stimulates your creativity? Really pay attention to yourself. Is it a lot of engagement with other people? Is it a lot of solitude? Is it seeing a lot of great art? Is it cutting yourself off and working in an attic where you have no stimulation? Is it working late into the night? Is it getting up first, you know, extremely early in the morning? Is it working in huge spurts near a deadline? Is it working a little bit every day so you never feel pressure? All these things are just, people are different and they work best they thrive under different circumstances. And so I think when people are trying to pattern themselves off of what they think others are like, that can, that can get in their way of understanding what's true about themselves. Gretchen Rubin, the book is Happier at Home. It is just out in paperback. Gretchen Rubin, thanks so much for spending time with us. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 